Hi, I'm Paul Camillos. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin for Series 4 of Shooting the Breeze. We cover women's hoops and women in hoops. We talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. During this series we'll be covering the FIBA Women's World Cup where the 12 best teams of the planet are coming to Sydney. And of course, we'll be covering Australia's longest running women's professional sporting league, the WNBL, in its 43rd season. Hit that subscribe button, like and review so we can get more Hoops content to you. It can be really overwhelming. So hearing other people share their stories, I think, and us raising awareness is so helpful for someone to be able to, I suppose, do something about it. You know, to not feel alone, to know where to go for help. You know, help seeking in itself is, I suppose, something that needs to be taught. Like you need to know when you need help and where to go for help. Captain of the Southside Flies and club stalwart Amy Rochi is championing the Lifeline Round and continuing the legacy of former captain and recent pod guest Jenna O'Hay. Despite a season-ending injury, Amy continues to have a significant impact on her team and the club with initiatives like the Lifeline Round. Showcasing true leadership, Amy opens up about her own personal experience in seeking support. We're grateful to Amy for this deeply reflective and thoughtful episode sharing the profound impact of mental health and well-being on players, the many elements to mental health, and also its far-reaching effect on loved ones and the community. It's a timely reminder that mental health, statistically, is one of the biggest health considerations in society today, so it's important to talk about it and normalise seeking help. Happy to journey with her teammates on the road as they make a strong finals run. The Flyers' final home game is Saturday the 4th of March against the Townsville Fire in a clash of the Titans, the top two teams of the regular season. The team is sponsoring $100 for each assist, and you can also contribute towards their $10,000 goal. The donation link is in our podcast notes. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me, my co-host, as always, Jacinta Gavin, and today we're joined by Amy Rochi. Amy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you Hello, here. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. We were doing a little bit of research, and you've pretty much played your entire career at Dandenong Southside, apart from a short side trip to Adelaide. It's not typical for a, a WNBL player to spend that much time with one club. Yeah, I suppose it's not. I did, yeah, I did seven years with Dandenong. Um, Tried to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and went over to Adelaide and, you know, was looking to better myself, but just really wanted to come back home, which was meant to be to Dandenong, so I still consider Southside Dandenong. Just new and improved, I suppose. But, yeah, I think it's something to, nothing against anyone that moves around, but I am certainly proud to be, um, you know, played a, a lot of games with one club. And seven years sounds like a really long time, but to me... Like it feels like you're, you've definitely been in the league a long time, but you're still super young. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess I started when I was 16, 17 years old and the first couple of years I wouldn't really say um, I was a professional athlete and I I didn't get to play much, but, um, you know, it's certainly 
still a massive commitment to do what we did and and to the girls that do it now you know you you don't get paid as much um in those first couple of years and it's a lot of commitment but it's all worth it it's when you get the reward at the end the other thing we obviously want to know about is how's your recovery going i'd love to say it was going well um i only managed the seven games before i injured my back uh i was meant to come back after eight weeks or start training at least after eight weeks but I had those scans about three weeks ago and didn't see enough healing and doesn't give me enough time to get back for finals. So I'll be cheering the girls on from the sideline from here. And are you able to share specifically what your injury is? Is it stress fractures? Yeah, I had I had a stress fracture uh, in the off-season just leading into the season. But because my back was a little bit weak, I started to get a stress response on the other side. So... It actually hasn't cracked into a stress fracture yet, but the risk is if I keep pushing through it, um, I've got so much bone stress there that it most likely would become a stress fracture. And stress fractures can be common, uh, especially with professional athletes. I know a lot of other WNBL players and even when they were still at the COE or AIS experiencing stress fracture being like an overuse injury. Uh, it sounds like it's something hard to avoid, especially going from season to season. So what's the best management for that for you at the moment? Yeah, it is common. Um, however, I have been told that my my lumbar uh, stress fractures in my back are more so for like younger 16, 17-year-old girls and boys, I suppose, that are growing. And I did have them when I was that age but managed to heal so it is a little bit um, not so typical to start getting them again at 29. Um, but, yeah, the management is just rest, try and get it to heal, and then slowly build up your load again. Or maybe you're just having another growth spurt at 29. <laughs> maybe. I, I played before, man, last year when we had injuries. So maybe it was, you know, my body just helping me out a little, trying to get me to grow a few inches. Exactly. That's why my dad always thought I... I'd only gotten tall because I played basketball and sometimes I had to play upper position. So maybe there's something to that theory. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so during the finals, you're going to be sitting there on the on the bench giving Cheryl a hand? Don't know how much Cheryl will listen to me. <laughs> She's got two, two very good assistant coaches there. Um, I think I'm also trying to help out the girls, in particular the point guard, you know, Maddie and Mon. They're, they're pretty receptive if they, you know, ask for help. I'm happy to give it. So I, I sort of call it our little point guard team. Um, I'll try to help them as much as I can. Uh, and I asked Cheryl the other day if she'll be taking me on the road for finals. And she said if I wanted to come, I could. So, yeah, it'll be really cool to be a part of it still. That's great. I want to get your thoughts about the big game at John Kane Arena because that was pretty special. How did you feel about that game? At first, it was kind of a little bit nervous that we, because we were talking about, you know, breaking the record and trying to sell it out and how massive it was going to be. And I guess we were all a little bit nervous, like, are we actually going to be able to do that? Because, you know, it's a big stadium. But the, you know, the team did a great job promoting the game for one. And it was amazing. I don't know. Uh, well, from what I've heard from the people that came, they, they said they loved it. The game itself was a bit disappointing. We really didn't play our best basketball and we didn't win. LJ went down a minute in, which kind of sucked the energy out of the air a little bit. But overall, like I looked around at the crowd a number of times just to try and soak it in and there were just kids 
going crazy, absolutely loving it. It was quite the show and hopefully sets the standard for where we can go because if every game was like that, it would be pretty amazing. It would. And, I mean, you know, and I don't want to, like, jinx anybody, but it would be great to see a cross-town grand final with a game or two at JCA again. I think oh, it was pretty close to sold out. It would be standing room only, I think, if something like that happened. Yeah, and I remember us all saying even for that game, like, oh, I wish it was against the Boomers just because I feel like that always draws a big crowd no matter what. If we could do that for finals, I don't know how long it takes to organise something like that, like whether you could just call <laughs> up John Kane and say, hey, we have a game next week, can we play? Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but, yeah, that would be very cool. Oh, no, I'm sure it'll be to ring up John Kane and go, oh, it's the WNBL, absolutely. We'll, we'll give him the room. I hope so. <laughs> We've proved big numbers before, so uh, a crosstown derby will be, you know, even bigger numbers, so I'm sure they'll hopefully clear the space. Like, you know, Ed Sheeran's playing there, clear the space. Southside yeah. Island and Boomers need that space, so kick out whoever else is there. <laughs> But have you ever experienced, like in your playing career, whether it's WNBL or otherwise, experienced something similar to that game at JCA in terms of the enormity of the event? Um, I have played in front of a massive crowd. It was our semi-final for the World University Games in Chinese Taipei, and we were playing against the host nation. So we actually had 22,000 people watching that game. So like an even bigger arena, completely packed, you couldn't hear yourself think. That's the only other time I think I really played in front of a, a crowd to that size, yeah. That's huge. And being the away team, I imagine that would have been a little intimidating. Yeah, and they were trying to trick yeah. us, like they were counting down the shot clock at the time and, you know, you thought you had <laughs> two seconds left because they're yelling it out, but you've really got ten, so... Yeah, it taught me a lot about, you know, staying focused and trying to cancel out that outside noise. I love that gag, though. I, I do that sometimes, <laughs> to be honest. It's a good one. I like it. It's a good one. <laughs> Especially when it's juniors and they don't have a shot clock. <laughs> Try and trick them. <laughs> Try and trick them. I mean, saying that, I did do that as a junior. I didn't do that as a grown adult picking on juniors. I, as a junior. I was going to say, that's a bit rough. Yeah. That's a bit rough. Yeah. Yes, a bit rough. Yeah. <laughs> no, when I was still a junior doing it to other juniors, definitely not an adult pulling little kids. Gotcha. <laughs> Okay, so we're rolling into the Lifeline round, which is being championed by Southside. Talk to us about how important Lifeline round is to the team and to everybody involved in the team. Yeah, I suppose it starts with our connection to Jenna. Um, she started the round in 2019 while playing for the Boomers and it became a league-wide round. So, you know, Jenna was our, our captain but also our friend, and it obviously had such a personal link to it for her with her uncle passing away to suicide. But also last season, Jenna was really strong in coming out and saying that she was struggling with mental health herself. So as teammates and as friends watching someone go through that, it's actually really hard. And that's why they say, you know, suicide and mental health is devastating, not just for the person it directly affects, but for friends and family and communities as well, um, because it can really touch everybody. So when the league decided not to run Lifeline Round anymore, Jenna was gutted 
but also didn't have the energy to make it happen herself at that time. So I promised her I would do what I could to make it happen. And I don't take full credit for that. It takes the club to get on board. It takes all the girls to get on board. Our team commits to making a big, a pretty big donation from our own personal bank accounts to sort of make a statement and encourage others to come along with us. And the impact can be massive. Yeah, we, we spoke with Jenna last year and she gave us a, a look into what, what it means to her and the lifeline round and how important it is to her. But one of the things that's really been impressed on me over the last couple of years, particularly with some of the guests that we've had on the podcast, is how many people have their mental health impacted by things that happen that are completely outside their control. Um, whether it be within sport or whether it be family or whether it be, you know, something else. We got a bit of a glimpse into the impacts on Tolo and Kayla from the Tokyo Olympics. We got a picture into Jenna's journey as well. From your perspective, how important do you think it is for people to realise that this could affect absolutely anybody? It is important because I feel like you don't know what it feels like or that it could happen to you until it does. And it can be really overwhelming. So hearing other people share their stories, I think, and us raising awareness is so helpful for someone to be able to, I suppose, do something about it, you know, to not feel alone, to know where to go for help. You know, help-seeking in itself is... I suppose, something that needs to be taught. Like you need to know when you need help and where to go for help. So, yeah, I think I don't even know if I answered your question properly there. <laughs> no, you did. I mean, it's, I suppose what's important is for people to realise that mental health is something that can affect absolutely anybody and it could be triggered by any one of a number of different things and something that I might think of as trivial is actually significant to someone else. I mean, I know, Jacinta, you raised something back when Katie Ray Ebsery retired from basketball about something that she put in her letter. Yeah, so I remember Katie Ray, to announce her retirement, she sought out some help from Megan Hussweet how to best articulate her journey through basketball um, up to the retirement announcement, and that included feeling a lot of anxiety around her career in terms of that anticipatory anxiety preparing for a game during the game even after the game when you have to go back and watch tape and reflect on your performance and things like that and it's it was really interesting because I feel like Katie Ray and a couple of other players have since come out and spoken about how uh, mental health issues in context of anxiety and etc definitely affect someone's performance but how much you can carry that off court and I think more recently, too, Panina Davidson and Annalie Maley have talked about how their mental health issues off court in their everyday lives can influence their performance on court, too. So there's this can be this bi-directional relationship between the two. But um, I was going to ask, Amy, in that context of more and more WNBL athletes in particular coming out and sharing their stories with mental health issues on and off court, have you seen any positive impacts within the league and within your teammates or even within yourself of you know other people speaking up so maybe fellow athletes are starting to feel like they can speak up too yeah I, I did read that article by Katie Ray and I will say I was a little bit surprised just you know like you were just alluding to Paul you it really can happen to anyone because I think from the outside looking in 
Um, Katie carried herself really well. She was a competitor on the court. She was successful um, making Olympics and Worlds and, you know, everything that we strive to do. So for her to come out and say that, you know, so much of it was not enjoyable because of the struggle she had was a surprise. Um, but in terms of the impact that has from an individual level, I think it reaches people and people can resonate with it. I could see myself a little bit in what she was saying. Uh, I struggled for many years just with any sort of confidence in my game. And it really doesn't matter at times how well prepared you are physically. If mentally you are not feeling good about yourself and not in a good place, it really is hard to perform. Uh, so I think it encourages athletes in a way to get help and to get help quickly. Um, I started seeing a sports psych just last season and I've been playing, this is my 14th season or something. And I'm like, well, why didn't I do that earlier? So I think the positive impact is that people aren't alone. They know that other athletes are going through this. It is normal. And yeah, they can, they can get the help they need to try and improve that. And in those 14 seasons, do you feel like, I mean, that's almost as long as Grace and I did, Amy. Um, <laughs> that's so good. 14 seasons is so good. Um, in that 14 seasons, have you noticed a trend that people are more willing now to talk about it with their teammates, like come to training and say, not 100%, feeling a bit burnt out or similar? Um, I don't think we're there yet. I wouldn't say that anyone sort of walks into training and, and says that. I think there's more space for people to go um, to either someone that they're comfortable with or even to the coach and there's more understanding there for sure. Like I, I went to Cheryl just a couple of weeks ago after receiving my season ending news and just said like, I'm really struggling to show up and and be here for the girls and put on a brave face when I'm not doing so well myself. And um, she was really understanding of that in, in you know, giving me the time away um, not having to show up to every single training and, and stuff like that. So it's certainly improved. I can't even imagine, you know, trying to do that at the beginning of my career. But I do think we have, yeah, more space to grow. Do you think that coaches, particularly now, are more attuned to the impacts of mental health on the team and are more understanding? Because, you know, there's the picture of the coach, you know, the, the hard taskmaster driving the team to win. And that kind of stands a little bit separate to an individual who's going to kind of hear feedback like you gave Cheryl and who goes, yeah, that's okay. You need to take the time to get yourself on an even keel. Do you think that the coaches are starting to understand the impacts that this has? Yeah, I do. I think they have to. I think even something like Lifeline Round and delving into statistics and just how prevalent you know this kind of stuff is you would be silly to to ignore it and not take it into account I mean I, I work in schools as well and I just know that that type of coaching you know the hard-assed coaching of it just doesn't work it just doesn't connect with people and at the end of the day athletes are people there's a difference between you know feedback and, and coaching like that's what a coach has to do of course but, yeah, I think there's a genuine people side to coaching that's really important. Yeah, I think, you know, there's – and I'm not trying to say that, you know, coaches are not going to give you their opinion if at halftime in a bad game because right. they will, <laughs> right? But it, I, I suppose what I'm getting at is that there's that, that understanding that, you know, there's what we do in the game 
and then there's outside the game training and everything else where we've got to be more flexible in taking into account where where different people are at. For sure. And I think, like, leadership, I think you can still be a very compassionate and empathetic leader and still get the job done. And like you said, and and in terms of, like, what's going on outside of basketball, we're not fully professional enough to say that everyone's on a level playing field either. Like, there is so much going on in people's lives We've got girls who, you know, are development players and getting paid $1,500 for the same commitment as someone getting $80,000 or whatever. And, you know, they're trying to work, they're trying to train, they're trying to be at their best and are probably really tired and really stressed out. So, uh, yeah, you do have to treat everyone on an individual level and meet them where they're at. I want to touch on the ABPA. We've spoken with Laura Hodges in the past and she's talked about the ABPA and, and the support they give the players. How do you find the support the ABPA has been giving the players? Because, I mean, you're a representative for the team to the ABPA. You've probably got a, a different insight, you know, you could share with the listeners on how the ABPA supports the player community. I think their main thing is that they look after us as people before basketball players. Um, there's resources there to seek you know, help from a psychologist, they can get referrals going, they can, there's funding to pay for a couple of sessions, there's funding for personal and professional development and education grants, uh, which is, you know, important for people either transitioning into the sport and trying to put in a plan for afterwards or for retiring players transitioning out of the sport. There's plenty of growth to go in that area. There's not a lot of funding put towards our, you know, personal and professional development or well-being support, I suppose, but the Players Association are the ones trying to drive that um, and look after us as, as much as they can. I was interested when you said personal and professional development, Amy, that the APBA provide, what does that kind of cover? Is it more on-court stuff or is it life skills? It's pretty much anything you want to do, I suppose, to add to your skill set. So it's away from the court, unless it's basketball relevant, if you want to do a coaching course or something like that. But it can really be anything. As long as you can justify that it's to develop you, um, they're happy to support it. And it can be as simple as like a barista course. If you want to learn how to make a good coffee and work in a cafe, like it's all about not having all your eggs in one basket, I suppose, which is a shame that as a female athlete, you do need to think so far into the future because you just the simple fact is you don't earn enough money that when you retire you know you're in a a place to stop working there has to be what's the next step so it's kind of encouraging people to just not focus on it but have that in the back of your mind of you know who are you away from sport and who are you when you're not an athlete I suppose yeah, I think that's something that uh, Panina and Annalie have spoken about in a podcast too, not trying to cement your identity as a person just around your professional athletic career and who you are on the court and being able to have some outlets to break the circuit a little bit. I know that they are both creative people and that's their kind of outlet. I know that Beck Allen likes to be outdoors a lot and have that separation. I think Steph Talbot is the same where they have that separation between like work and leisure. It's quite separate. Um, what are some of your strategies you've uh, developed over the 14 seasons you've had and even as since a junior for you to help break that cycle for yourself? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's still an ongoing process. 
you know, I mentioned seeing a sports psych um, only last year. I think up until that point, I put a lot of my self-worth into my basketball performance. And, you know, as athletes, we're very goal-orientated of, I want to make this team and I want to be an Opal and I want to go to an Olympics and I want to do all these things. That when you don't achieve those things, you can, well, I suppose it affects your self-worth. But that's because, like you just said, you're putting all your, who you are as a person based, at, like, as an athlete, which at the end of the day, it's what we do. It's not who we are. So I've come to realise that my sort of cup gets filled up when I'm helping others. And that can sound really cliche, but it's the part of the game that I enjoy. It's helping the younger girls. It's helping, you know, from the sidelines with my point guards. It's helping the community and trying to drive initiatives like Lifeline. And then away from basketball, it's working in schools. I love working with young people. I'm a qualified teacher, so I have a job in a school working in a sports program. And again, I actually, it's not even the basketball teaching that I like. It's getting to know the kids as people and trying to help them, I suppose, with the lessons that I've learned through professional sport. And um, what, like when you started to see a sports psych, was that mostly in the context of coping with having a serious injury? Yeah, my career has kind of been hit with injuries at the wrong time and You know, I'd make an Opal squad and then I'd get injured and then I'd make the next one and get injured and then struggled for a couple of years. So it's trying to, I suppose, learn to deal with the setbacks and that you're not necessarily going to achieve the things you set out to. But looking for value in, I suppose, why I keep on playing and how to still seek the enjoyment and not just always be chasing, you know, If I don't make that team, well, I suck. It's like, well, no, you've played 200 professional basketball games. That's more than, you know, some people could ever hope for. So, yeah, to answer your question, it was about self-worth and confidence. And having a – I think what some people – whether it's in a uh, sporting context or otherwise, I know that some people are hesitant to seek professional help, uh, feeling like they're talking to a stranger, but sometimes having that – neutral person who doesn't know you as the athlete who isn't the teammate who isn't attached to your family friend can be of benefit did you have that a similar experience yeah and I think it's important in team sport because at the end of the day everyone wants to be a good teammate and you don't ever want to be selfish but there are times when you know you do need to help yourself Um, and that's where I think professional help is really cool because you can say whatever you want you know, it's confidential, it's non-judgmental, and it's just your feelings at the end of the day. And you don't have to you don't have to justify them. It's just it's just talking to someone about it. And I guess to flip the script a little bit, you spoke about before. You know how much a lifeline has been uh, has a bit of a history now with our side, especially through Jenna. How do you feel about the role of players and teams and clubs, like developing a sense of advocacy and community engagement around? these kinds of, I always say this wrong, not-for-profits. I think it's important to highlight that Lifeline is a not-for-profit. It is a service that, you know, is available by phone. But since sometimes when people are in crisis or feeling suicidal, they don't want to talk to someone, there is also a chat line as well. And behind providing all those services is a lot of resources and training. Um, So Lifeline really depend on a lot of donations. So you know, how, how do you feel like in this position, like how important is 
being an advocate as a athlete and as a as a club i think it's very important i'm of the opinion that you know if you can help if you're in a position to help you should just as humans i think we owe it to each other to help each other out i think as athletes we're very privileged to be in a situation where we are seen as role models and you can ask any athlete it's i think it's a blessing um you're a role model whether you like it or not and i think with that comes some responsibility you know i wish we were like if you know if i was an afl player i saw an afl player recently ben brown shave his head to raise money for a, a cause and i think on his own he raised something crazy like 40 grand 50 grand we don't quite have that platform but we just saw sydney flames raise twenty thousand dollars for pink round for breast cancer awareness like that's very significant and you know we even put together six hundred dollars to contribute to that i just think people get a little bit nervous to donate you know $10 or $20 or $5 because they think it's not enough. But I think the beauty of what we can do as athletes and as a sporting community is when you put it all together, when everyone contributes just a little bit, it can have significant impact. And impact doesn't have to be just money. As you said, Lifeline does rely on donations to keep training their support workers and, and whatnot. But if one person who didn't know about Lifeline now knows about it because we've promoted it and spread awareness and it saves their life well then that's one person is enough impact for me yeah and obviously we want to see as many people as possible donate to lifeline during the the upcoming round Uh, so do you know is the team going to be doing something like what the flames did to be able to take donations online yeah there'll be a um, donation link just like the flames did which will go to our Southside Flyers um, Lifeline page. If you're at the game, it'll come up on the big screen, like a QR code for people to jump on. Um, I'm sure it'll be on Instagram somewhere. And there'll be a raffle on the day too with some pretty cool prizes. So there'll be a couple of ways to get involved and contribute. And has the Flyers got a target of what they'd like to raise with this round, like a numerical target? Um, I don't think so. Um, I just know that we're as a team donating $100 for every assist and that could we don't really know what we're in for so I'm, I think we av- <laughs> we average 16 <laughs> assists but we've also got like a max what our, our biggest assist for the year has been like 30 something so I guess what we raise will just be determined on how we play and then <laughs> sponsors I think will hopefully match us so there's no real goal it's just to raise as much as possible and hopefully we'll see teams step up and contribute just like you guys did to the Flames for the breast cancer round. I hope so. I think there's no obligation to, but I think the round actually means a lot to more than just our team. There's a lot of people in the league passionate about mental health. Um, as you said before, you mentioned a bunch of players who have been talking about it recently. And it used to be a league round that everyone got around. So hopefully we see a little bit of support. Well, hopefully through um, Southside continuing the lifeline round, it will be another point of advocacy, I guess, or exposure for the league to continue having a lifeline round. We had a reach out round last season. So it'd be really great for the league to continue to have some kind of mental health uh, round, whether it'll be lifeline or reach out or otherwise. I think considering we've already discussed today how prevalent it is just in our basketball community, let alone uh, in the wider community, especially after the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think... I'm not sure the exact stat, but I believe they've received 40% more calls since the pandemic. 
So I think, you know, a 40% increase in phone calls shows that people have been going through a really hard time. But I did speak about this on another podcast that it's also, you can look at that in a slightly positive um, lens that it actually means that more people are reaching out for help. Some of those people may have already been struggling and not known where to go for help. So the increase in calls, of course, could be because people are struggling more, but it also could be people reaching out for help when they previously hadn't. So that's, again, where the awareness comes into it. One of the things you touched on before is something I wanted to just come back to for a second about when your career ends and going on to something else, what could be done to make that easier for players? Because it's, it's one of the things that I've I've seen over, over quite a few years and it's something we've talked about on the podcast before and I'd I really, really like to get your opinion on that. Hmm, I think it's access to some education about what we actually bring aside from basketball. Like athletes, I don't think, always realise the transferable skills that they have. We've been so focused our whole lives on this game of basketball that you forget that there's so much more to you as a person and what you can offer the world. And I've been doing a lot of work, not only with my sports psych, but I'm in a, a program called Athletes for Hope Australia. And one of the things that I got out of that was sitting down with, um, I suppose she's a coach, but she coaches like CEOs and in, I suppose, the business world, but also athletes about your strengths as a person, as a leader. And I've learned so much about myself and I'm actually excited for what I'll be able to do with my experience as an athlete, but also with those strengths and how I can use them, I suppose, in life after basketball. So I think what could be done is just a little bit more funding into having resources to have those sorts of conversations with players um, so that they can start forward thinking into the future. I think that's such a good point you made about transferable skills because I feel like so many of my life skills that I'm really good at, I probably either learnt through or fostered through playing basketball. Like, you know, when you enter those state elite programs, when you're in high school, you learn your time management skills, you've got to learn your communication skills. And when you get into any kind of workplace, you can really tell who have and who haven't played team sports because sometimes some of those skills may not be up to par as your own after playing basketball for so long, right? And especially leadership skills. Like I don't think a lot of athletes recognise that uh, their communication skills and their leadership skills, whether it is fostered or if it's something that's always been with them, but just never recognised how important that is in the real world too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to add to that is is teamwork. Like there's not really any job that you get that you don't have to work with other people um, or consider different people's perspectives. And basketball or sport really is very inclusive in the fact that it brings people from all different walks of life and opinions and perspectives and goals and brings them all together trying to achieve the same goal, which is, you know, to win and to win a championship. So there's certain things you need to be able to do as an individual to work in a team. And I think that's pretty transferable as well. And I think around education as well, you know, we recently saw with the Indigenous round with the WNBL was a big focus on educating the clubs and the players about First Nations culture. I saw that the Flies did really cool, like, weaving as part of your education, which looked really, really fun and super important to 
have everyone, I suppose, recognise like what First Nations culture is and what it looks like and cement ourselves in that. And I feel like there would be a space if we had a mental, consistent mental health round league-wide to include a lot of education for individuals of how to perhaps recognise when you're not 100% your best. Because um, I think like, and I'd love to get your opinion on this too, I think like you get so used to the season to season of basketball and it becoming so much of your routine that when it starts to not be fun anymore or because that's all you really knew, it's hard to recognise when you perhaps need a rest. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think every season there's challenges. I think it's when there's a certain line. Like you can you go through ups and downs all the time and you need to be able to learn to, you know, build resilience and cope with those changes there is a line that you can sort of step over where, I mean, I think, like you said, you don't even recognise it sometimes that you're heading in that direction until it all kind of blows up in your face a little bit. So in terms of education, I another thing I probably didn't mention before with the Players Association is they offer free mental health first aid training, which I did. Um, I did that while I was in the hub um, and that's offered every year to anyone who wants to do it. So... You know, it's probably true about having a round, maybe we can get more education around it. But I also think that we shouldn't have to just have specific rounds to have this continuous education. And it's the same with Indigenous round. You know, we said to our artist, Emma Stenhouse, that we wanted to keep on wearing our Indigenous jerseys to show that it is an ongoing commitment to learn. It's not just one round where we go, yep, tick a box. It's more than that. And it's the same with, with mental health as well. Yeah, I I would love that. I think that sounds really, really great. I'd love to see the teams wear their Indigenous jerseys all year round to continue to show that we are always playing and participating and living on First Nations land. And I think having a jersey is a good first step to always remind ourselves that we are doing that. And yeah, that continuous education, like is is there any um, anything offered by your club or the league in terms of mental health well-being or just well-being in general that's a continuous education provided through the season even if it's something like sports nutrition i think every club is different we're really lucky at the flyers we had a nutritionist come in um, and do an education session with us and we have access to her throughout the season if we'd like we had a sleep well i don't even know what you call them i was going to say a sleep doctor but she's not a sleep doctor but she gave us a, um, we'll call her a sleep expert. She came in and gave us an education um, around travel and sleep and trying to get the most out of your recovery. But that's, you know, that's coming from our club. And then the Players Association obviously mm-hmm. does have access to psychologists and, and wellbeing support. The league, I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. That holistic standpoint from the Flyers sounds really, really good because, I mean, there's strong relationships between diet and sleep uh, to mental health as well. So it's all this kind of, it's a, it's a big kind of marriage of things. Um, and for those who don't know what mental health first aid is, are you able to give a quick rundown of what it is and what your main takeaways were from when you did it in the hub? Yeah, I suppose it's just being able to really, the body of it is learning to listen and being able to recognise, I suppose, the first signs of someone struggling it's by no means training to try and be able to solve the issue or I'm not going to say fix someone, but fix whatever they're going through. It's not about that. That's for the professionals. It's about one, knowing what to look out for, 
um, perhaps what to say in certain situations when someone's struggling, but mainly encouraging um, help seeking and just having a bit more background knowledge on where people can go for that help, which is essentially lifeline. Um, or you could encourage them to go talk to their GP if it's you know an emergency. You'd you'd, you'd call triple zero. But I learned a lot just about they go through lots of stuff in the course. I went for two days and, and each of it was, oh, I can't even remember how many hours we did, but it's really eye-opening and can give you some really, really good skills in how to listen and, and help someone. Uh, just before we, we go, we do ask every guest an off-script <laughs> question. So I'm going to ask you, first of all, do you prefer movies or books? Movies. Okay. So tell us. Who would be the one movie character that you most would most associate yourself with? Oh, you put me on the spot here. That's very difficult to answer. <laughs> movie character. People usually answer this really quickly because I'm struggling here. <laughs> no, no, they, they don't. don't. They don't. They don't. It's probably the one question, unscripted question that stumps people the yeah. most, to be fair. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I could go with a corny answer and say no one's like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's that would be unique. We haven't had that yet. I think of oh, for some, I've answered the question before of who would I want to play me in a movie, and I always say Cameron Diaz. Mm-hmm. Just I love like her fun, bubbly personality, but she's also like really smart and intelligent. But I don't know about a character that she's played that would be like me. <laughs> so I don't. We've had some Disney princesses oh. as well in as answers to similar questions. Yep. yep. So, yeah, it can even be an animated character if anyone pops to mind. You know what's going to happen now, though? We'll finish the recording and then, you know, in the middle of the night you'll think of something and go, oh, I'll be thinking answer. about it all night trying to come up with one for next time I ever get to ask this question now. <laughs> it's funny, I actually watch more TV shows than I do movies, though. Like, I'm actually struggling to come up with, like, a movie. Well, okay, what about a TV oh. character then? Oh, what what type of TV shows do you like watching? And do you like to watch it just to unwind yeah, a little bit? Yeah, I do, mainly just to unwind because um, I watch all sorts of different shows. Like, at the minute, I'm re-watching Suits for, like, the third time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but like one of my favourite shows was Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy, but I also loved um, Shit's Creek. I don't know if you guys have watched Shit's Creek, but that's one of the best <laughs> TV shows. Oh yeah, uh, so like yeah. the genres I mean are just all over the shop for me. Just a bit of anything. You could have a rebrand of a little bit of a, a little bit Alexa to a little I bit. I like Amy. it. She. I can't say I'm anything like her, but I absolutely love her. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've even we've even had Seinfeld characters. Yep. Yeah, Tolo said she was really? Kramer. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Actually, and to me, I think she actually answered that quite quickly. I'm not too sure if she had already answered a similar question in the past, or if she, in her mind, already knew yeah. that she <laughs> has been likened to Kramer a lot before. <laughs> I think that was kind of how she concluded Kramer. Yeah. Because she, um, yeah, I think it's something that has followed her through her life. That's very funny. Maybe I'd have to ask my teammates and they can give me a someone that I'm like, hmm. I can't answer your question, I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Amy, look, 
thanks so much for giving us your time today. And again, everybody who listens, get online, donate if you're at the game, participate, buy raffle tickets. Other teams out there, guys, donate as well. We need to be able to support services like Lifeline, and it is a very important service. And it's great to see that the Flyers are are keeping the Lifeline round going. Amy, thanks so much for your time. It's been really great. Thank you, guys, and thanks so much for your support. Really appreciate it. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.